Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Called Podcast. Tonight, the desert legend himself, Sean Wheeler. Sean, how are things? <laughs> oh, I'm good, dude. I love Desert Legend because uh, it's so ridiculous, but it's it's also, uh, I like hearing it. It's just, it's just silly. Well, how are you, you Robert? Y- you inspired everybody, though. I think Legend is an understatement. Anybody that came from that area, they're going to they're gonna look at what you originally started with. So, Well, they they do that just because it's a small town, but um, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna. It's funny I listen to I don't listen to a lot of podcasts I guess, mm-hmm. but I I listen to uh, I listened to one recently because I was real curious and it was uh, it was desert politics and stuff were involved you know as far as our scene and uh and uh anyways I don't know what the point is oh the point is. Sometimes when people are on podcasts, they have uh, things that they definitely want to make sure they talk about. You know what I mean? Which I usually just ramble. But I, the Desert Legend thing is that started because when, like, when uh, Mario Lolly Boomer, mm-hmm. that's what Jetson would go to Europe and they would and they would bill him like Desert Legends. That's what Jetson and Mario would come home and go ah. I, I hate that they, they they do that. I just wish I could um just you know be known for how great my music is and not have to be stuck with the you know the. And I was like, ooh, that's good, dude. I'm gonna take it then. Desert Legend. It just sounds so. Uh, that's it. so. It started off, you know, as a joke uh, for sure, but but also. Uh, I just like it. It it sounds like when you hear it, like, oh, I think I heard of that dude. You know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, shit. We were on, I was on a tour with Mark Rannigan. This is so fucked, dude. And and I sent, uh, so I made this commercial, you know, to try to fill in some dates. Mm -hmm. And it was like, Josh Harmy. It was all my friends from those, you know, saying nice things about me. And we sent them to clubs. And so when the clubs saw them, they're like, wow. This guy must be somebody, you know. <laughs> so, like, we were, it's, it was such a bummer, dude. So, so we were somewhere, man. And, you know, there was literally, they opened up on Sunday. They they were normally close. And they did a special show for the Desert Legend because, you know, everyone knows about him because of the commercial. So, uh, and no one's there. There's, like, three people. And, uh, and, uh. And the phone rings, and it's that quiet. You know, we're on stage. I can hear the phone ring, and the bartender answers, and she goes, you can hear a pause. I heard a pause, and she goes, I don't know, some dude who calls himself Desert Legend or something? (laughs) 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 Which is, you know... So there you have it, Desert Legend, Sean Wheeler. Oh man! Well, you, you even have family that goes way back to the to the original Palm Springs, right? Yeah, my. Uh, my my great uncle and my grandmother were the first non-native children born in Palm Springs, meaning only Indians were born here. There was no hospital here. Uh, I don't know what year it was. It might have been, I guess it was in the 20s, which is hard to wrap your head around because California, you know, America is such a new country. Mm-hmm. Well, new as far as, you know, Europeans are concerned. And then... um. So the, California was still wide open, especially 100 years ago. You know what I mean? It was completely open. There's no hot. So they were born in, in, uh, over here in, uh, right by my house on this 
a tent over here. Uh, so there's a couple of rich people showed up to Palm Springs and I guess, you know, for the weather, for their diseases, or I don't know why they came. And uh, they had my great-grandfather come here and work for him. And he had five kids already. So one theory is that there were like three other white kids or something. So by getting my family here, they put them to work, but then they also were able to get a school teacher because then they had eight kids. So they could uh, hit the county up. Hey, we got eight kids out here. We need a teacher. So the first school, uh, five of the eight kids were McKinney's, which was also my people, you know, my, my great, my great uncles and uh, aunts. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Did you always try to know the history of your family going back to that area? Or did that not really come till later? Well, I was really close with my grandmother and she, and she liked to let everyone know. And she was, she was proud of it and everything. And, uh, and so seems, seems like sometimes history and, you know, but it seems like history skips a generation often because I don't know if people just don't like their parents or don't or get sick of hearing what their parents have to say. So by the time, I don't know why, but I was always, I was always trying to uh, at least keep track of stuff. Like I got, my grandmother gave me lots of uh, stuff before she, you know, like it would be Christmas and I would go, oh, I just, you know, old photos or any kind of, cause I just, I wasn't studying it then, but I just knew that I wanted to understand it or know about it later. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. and I still don't, I can't even give you the date, you know, which is typical of me. Oh, I think it was the twenties, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so anyways, but yeah, so they've been here a long time. We've been, I'm the last one in Palm Springs. I think it used to be, uh, they all went up to the high desert, like Yucca Valley by Joshua tree and stuff. Mm-hmm. But which is 20 minutes away, but you know, I'm like, uh, I've always been the city slicker, so you know, I'm i'm here in the big city <laughs> my my wife's family lives in um indian wells so i'm i'm down there a lot oh really dude i I, well? I i know i know the area pretty well yeah so it's a trip man like anyways life's not only is it a trip life's just a trip so i'm always you know i'm old but i don't know i think i'm 53 52 66 uh, and i would just i just trip on it all the time you know and i got i live my wife and i and my son we live in we live in a house that my great uncle and his brother built in 49 it's a little house it's it's cool but i but i know just by looking around it that it was all stuff that they had at this trailer park they had when when i was growing up they had a trailer park and they're always just the cactus in my front yard has has been you know, there since probably since some of it since then, you know what I mean? It's pretty big and mm-hmm. I don't know. I like that kind of stuff, but well, uh, growing up in the desert, how easy was it for you to acquire the art that you were wanting growing up? Uh, you know, I, I think I, uh, I was, uh, I was just always, in, you know, what's crazy, man, is I was always into like fashion, I guess. <laughs> I mean, even as a little kid, man, like little kid, I would be like, you know, how, how come the black kids dress so much cooler and how, how come the, or how come the Mexican kids look? I just was always very curious about all everything I was looking at as far as how people dressed. And also I just always loved music. So I was thinking about it and dude, and, and we ran, I ran a muck. Like my mom was, I don't know if it was different then or, but I didn't have, 
curfews or so me and my, my partner Martin Choquette, who's French Canadian, we would uh we would it was the seventies, right? So we'd be going to like high school discos in sixth grade and stuff, you know, like dance nights and stuff and dancing and so music music was always something I enjoyed, you know, and and, and fashion, I guess, which sounds funny because I'm a tall poser, but uh <laughs> but uh it wasn't hard, man, you know, like my my grandmother had a car wash, so all the I was I got into skateboarding like all kids did, in the, or like in the seventies, early seventies, and so music was always around, is what I'm trying to say. And then, uh, well, how often were you traveling to L.A. to go see shows, or were there bands that were coming out to the desert and you were just picking up on them? There was both, man, and um, so like. By like 1980, I would say, you know, uh, we were ninth ninth grade was still in junior high. Then we were junior high kids, and we were like skater kids. And punk rock was already happening, obviously, for however many years, three or four years. But we were just 13 or whatever at that point. So we were getting into it because like the skaters were already. You're hearing a lot more punk rock because skateboarders were already into punk rock and stuff, you know, and we're starting to hear the punk rock in in 1980. There was one dude in particular named Mike Bates, and he was in high school. And he and I was he was the only guy, like all the guys were into Clash and Devo and Blondie and Sex Pistols and cars you know it was kind of like new wave and punk and whatever you know what i mean and i but mike bates was the first punk rocker in high school the other dudes that we skated with that were older than us they they weren't into it they didn't want to cut their hair and, and forfeit you know uh all the stuff you'd forfeit by being a punker back then if you were a punk rocker 1980 81 you'd still be getting well you would have men trying to beat you up. You know what I mean? It was, it was crazy. Like people, you're fair game, you know? Mm-hmm. So he, had, the point is he had a, he had a truck. He was the only one. So he would take us to shows pretty early, 1980, 81. And I'm bummed dude. Cause that go documentary came out. I remember they went to see the go-go's at the whiskey. I remember when that first single came out, we had it in junior high. And, uh, and for some reason I just didn't hop in the truck. We all pile on his truck, but there's a, a few shows I wish I would have seen, but we were going up to LA regularly by by 1981. We we were going up to Los Angeles to shows all the time, you know, punk rock shows. And some bands came here. Uh, Sin 34. I met I met Dave Markey, who's a he's a filmmaker. He made uh, for Teenage Love Dolls and some other films. I met him with this guy Mike Bates at Black Flag, I think at the at a Black Flag show, and and they just put their band together. Like, dude, you should come out and play in the desert. They're like, all right. So they picked up. They didn't have a guitar player. They picked up this dude, Mike Vallejo, from the band Circle One. Mike, great. Oh, he does on online all the time now on Facebook since COVID. But uh, they came down here to play a, a party, like in 1981, I guess, maybe 82, their first show. And so that's when I started my first band. I was like, dude, let's make a band so we can we can play with uh, Sin 34. So Mike Bates played guitar, and I got Julie, the singer from Sin 34, to play bass. And this dude, Johnny Bloodstick, was playing drums. But uh, it's called, and it, whoa, what's that? Uh, I just sent this dude a symbol. It looks kind of like it's a snake with some crosses and some 
scales and i'm like what is this dude what, what does this mean you know and then i and then i started looking it up and it's like i then i started wondering whoa i wonder if scales i wonder if the snakes if snakes represent weight as in scales you know i started overthinking it but anyways uh we, we were going to shows early though my first show was devo we all went up to devo in junior high school in riverside and uh, some of the older kids had already gone to see Devo a few times. And then uh, Freedom of Choice had just come out, but it, but Whip It wasn't a hit yet. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really great. Dude, they played Devo movies and Spaz Attack was on stage dancing. And then right after that, like from the new way straight into punk, I went to the Starwood. The last night it was open, it was Fear, the Chiefs, and the Ozzy Harris. I was so scared, dude. I had this idea, image in my mind that like... Like, I, I always paint things to be more, I mean, it was exciting for sure, but but I was like, oh, my God, are we, am I going to get to Hollywood and get beat up? What's going to happen? And you're like 15 years old. Like, <laughs> yeah. Is it going to be okay? And, and, of course, I think Jay Adams stabbed someone that night at the Starwood. It was the last night the Starwood was open. The cops were there, of course, hassling people. Went to so all those things were happening, but it felt comfortable. It wasn't imagining it to be you know what what were these parties like back in the day that you were holding when your mom was at work those parties were just like you know the thing with the desert parties like any small town was and i remember because we had a we were always in the scene report back then on flip side in uh palm springs you know i got and uh and this one guy wrote in all all our friends were there the preppies and and i remember some of the other punks from other cities like were like preppies like how could you have preppies, you know, hang out with the punkers or whatever? And it was like, well, because there wasn't enough people. So if there was a party, people just came and partied. You know what I mean? It, was, it didn't matter what what you were into. You, the common thing was just going to a party. There weren't like, hey, there's a party. Let's go. You know what I mean? We just went. It could have been a cholo party or it could have been a, a preppy party, like a rich kid party. It could have been any kind of party. You were just stoked to be at a party. Because there wasn't that many kids back then. In the '80s, Palm Springs had one high school, and then there wasn't another high school until Indio. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so, anyways, the parties at my mom's house. You know, my mom was gone quite a bit, and also just didn't seem to. She, you know, you know what's a trip, dude. Now that now that I'm older and and uh. You know, I have two boys. I have a boy that's 30 and a boy that's going to be 14. But there used to be a lot of parents on my street at my mom's house. It's a couple streets over from where I live. And they wouldn't let the, the kids weren't allowed to come to my house. And I, I, never thought, I never thought about anything, to be honest with you. But reflecting back on it, it's like there's no way I'd let my kids, my, my son go, uh, to my house, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> the writing was on the wall, dude, that, that this is not going to end well, you know what I mean? Most likely not going to end well. So the parties were, they were, you know, my my uncle is, a, I don't know how old my uncle was, but he was probably a teenager when, well, however old he was, you know, he would buy us beer, you know, we, we, could, we could get Beer, we were we had plenty of beer and everything by by junior high school. Beer was you know we're, the parties were just happening always. So we're just a bunch of drunk young kids. You know the cops would come, 
I got arrested two or three times for disturbing the peace. Just we just plug in and go. Anyone could play there, and, and it, just always partying at my mom's house. I mean, every single day, you know, until you know the the party turned darker as I got older because I got into like the dark arts ah, or uh, whatever. I just the, the more it became like narcotic based as we got older, the lamer it got for sure. But but for years and years and years, man, we just. And that poor, this is a nice street, too. So when I, when I go on bike rides with my family down that street, I'm like, man, those poor people, man. I was just like, <laughs> like I, we had an Irish setter and knew we were slobs. And every day I'd feed this dog. This is an elementary school. Every day I'd feed it this big can of cow can, like a eight or 10 inch can, like the big one. And every day I would feed him like, it was really gross. It was like a, a circular compressed dog food. <laughs> throw it in there every day man i throw the the can over the fence into the neighbor's yard whoop and never think twice about it you know which is you know and i just you know that's just one one thought i think god i can you imagine like every day having some asshole throw a big a, a dog food can in your yard every day for years you know <laughs> um anyways i don't know what the point is well parties were Go ahead. I'm sorry, Robert. Well, no. How did mutual hatred come to be then? Was it just kind of out of necessity to play some shows? Oh, uh, well, mutual hatred literally just came to be because Sin 34 was coming to Palm Springs to play. And we're like, dude, let's make a band. So the night, we had one or two nights to figure it out. So so we learned Louie Louie and probably Stepping Stone. And then... um. We did this Wait Till Your Father Gets Home, which was a cartoon back then. Sort of like a family guy, but in the 70s. I love my mom and dad and my brother, too. And the groovy way we get along. But every time the slightest little thing goes wrong, mom starts up singing that familiar song. Wait till your father gets, till your father gets, wait till your father gets home. So we did that. I don't even know how the music, like, went. I guess he figured it out. Uh, we weren't that good. Uh we did this impromptu thing about like masturbation called uh it would be like it seemed like every punk band had like a slow song that went fast. It was like bow, down, down, rub me, down, 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 harder, down. And that went on for a long time. Well had stop. Oh, my dick's too dry, I need Vaseline, what a joy, Vaseline, what a joy. And then uh course a song about so we had a little i still got the set list which is crazy from that night and it's it's on the back it's on the back of a cramps at the whiskey flyer which you know now that i'm on i'm like fuck i wish i would have went to that show instead and uh, but you know <laughs> did, uh, did you ever talk i was more into being involved and then you know if, if you could be personally involved it felt it felt more important than it just felt you know, now that I'm older, I, yeah, I, I just wish I would have went to cramp, to cramp the whiskey that night. But were you ever thinking about a band before the the, the Sin Thirty Four was going to come to town, or was it really just they're coming? We got to open. We got to just do something for this. Yeah, I remember, man. I remember me and my friend. I was talking about Martin Choquette, who I did all my since since we were on uh, Big Wheels together. You know, in diapers, like. His parents were French Canadian, and they were really, really cool. And and so it was like, 
Ah, you know, it was the 70s. Kids will be kids. So me and Martin were like just out. We we're out on our bicycles. We get up in the morning before elementary school and go kind of like just terrorize on our bikes with our little crew. And then we'd be out until, you know, 10, 11 at night. And I, so me and Martin tried writing a song. I felt like it was in the summer of sixth grade. But I don't know what, you know, because we were into Kiss, man. We, Martin and I were really into Kiss. And we used to do these, like, uh, you know, it was puberty or prepubescence. So we do these, like, you know, kids concerts. We play Kiss on the 8-track and, like, pretend like we were jamming for these chicks that lived in the neighborhood. Like, yeah, check us out. You know, so it, it must have had. But, yeah, besides that, I would just kind of hyperactive. So I'll be the singer, you know, and. That was what was so cool about punk rock, uh, at least for us, and it was probably the same for people who play garage music. And you know, it was like so entry level that you didn't, you didn't really have to uh, know how to play. Like mutual hatred, we had literally like trash can for the drums. We had a trash can, a no skateboarding sign. We just like we might have brought drums that night, but then beyond that, we started really like getting the band going. We just pieced stuff together, you know, and then. I remember when we went to get a bass amp, um, you know, you're like, whoa, that one's rad, dude. It's, it's maroon or it's black. Like, you didn't even know what it was. You just bought it for the color. <laughs> and then and then the bass player, you know, like, the, the thought then was, oh, you don't have to know how to – anyone can play bass, you know what I mean? Like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. So, you know, the bass player never really got to play out of his amp because I always sang out of it. And, I, and we had this – there weren't a lot of kids here, man. So uh, it seemed like there was like hippie guitar players, you know. So we had this guy, Hippie Greg, you know, and we cut his hair, and he was our guitar player. And, uh, you know, mutual hatred. And then I was just always in bands from that point on, though. You know, like did, did you just always. kind of did you just kind of fall into being a singer every single time, or was there something else that you wanted to be doing within the music scene? Nah, dude, I I didn't even uh, and I wasn't even a good singer. I mean, I was theatrical and I could scream punk rock, but I was not a natural singer for sure. I uh, nah, I just you know I was really hyperactive and really uh, all over the place, and I. So I just was like immediately, I'll be the singer, you know, because I was just a fucker. I was really just a clown, you know, and and I needed a lot of attention, you know, apparently. And I, so I, I was a, I just chose singer, you know, I'll be the singer. <laughs> and unfortunately, I'm dominant. So if I would have, well, I, I only say that because I, I would get really excited and make these really cool bands and have these great concepts and do all this stuff. But then... I wouldn't, you know, surround myself with musicians that were great and listen to what they had to say, you know what I mean, which would have behooved me to, to make good music. So I always had cool, I put image in front of, 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 the, of the music, I think, a lot of times, and, and I, was, I would get lazy, I wouldn't want to try too hard, so I'd go, oh, that's good enough, and, and looking back on it, you know, it probably... There was a point, though, when Mutual Hatred broke up, um, we were supposed to be on this Mystic Records comp. I'm so bummed we're not on it now. And I remember uh, we had this song called Greenpeace Sucks. And, uh, you know, back then everyone was just trying to bum everybody out, so we didn't really mean anything we were saying, but everything we said was totally uncool. So Greenpeace Sucks was... Mutual Hatred actually practiced a lot, though, so we were really tight. But uh, 
Greenpeace sucks was the hit. It was all kill the whale, watch him die, ignite his blubber, and make him fried. Greenpeace sucks. Greenpeace sucks. Turtle meat, I love to eat. I thrash and beat for turtle meat. Greenpeace sucks. Greenpeace sucks. Kill the seal, take his pelt, chop it up into a kill. Greenpeace sucks. Creepy sucks. Creepy sucks. Creepy sucks. So they chose that for this comp, this punk comp. The only reason I wish we were on the comp is so that I could go, oh, look how cool I am. I was on a punk comp from L.A. <laughs> you know, when I was in 1982. I'm more punk than you. And But maybe that's not the whole truth because I still feel like no matter what I do and it doesn't matter how, how it, you know, if it comes out on vinyl, I always feel like something was accomplished you know it's 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 like if, like the goal is maybe my goals are wrong it's like wow rad it's on vinyl you know I'm, I'm still super stoked anytime anything i do is on vinyl i just feel like cool man mission accomplished you know mm-hmm. yeah I don't know. so i was just so i was always in bands and i was bouncing around a lot man i you know you could you could go as far as to say i was a poser because i would get excited about something else and go from king punker to you know king two-tone scar guy or king this or king that like i took everything so literal like it, it like it was like you have you have to be all in or or not at all you know like instead of just like now that i'm older most all that stuff i really dig a lot of it you know it's not like any of it was bad but i just really felt like i had to be the face of it each time i got involved i couldn't just enjoy it you know well yeah so, so were, were you listening to like stuff like ska and like the crooners back when back when you were growing up or did you just dude, yeah so we had this? we had a ska band uh in i think 1983 84 at the latest so it was still would have been considered i guess the second wave you know because two-tone was still the two-tone bands were still putting stuff out and then petering out. You know what I mean? That that initial English movement, like Madness, we're starting to, you know, it was becoming more pop with a lot of them, but, but Bad Manners and Madness and the English Beat, those bands. So at the tail end of that, we, you know, you could go, uh, we, we had a ska band out here. And it was the same thing, almost like it's the punk. Like you kind of got to, I don't know. It seemed like maybe you needed to know how to play a little more to play ska. So it was probably really, really bad. But it was like, okay, we got to get um, we got to all, we got to have six or seven of us. It's got to be black and white. And it's got to be. We have to have suits, and then we got to get some vespas and some lambrettas, <laughs> and uh, you know what I mean. So I got the whole thing together, and then we and we just started playing right away. We had this band, the Psychotics. And and by the end, it got I got a demo tape this guy gave me. It, this was right around the time John Belushi died. I know this because the guy at the local record store, the record alley, Dave Fields, was going to take me to see the Blues Brothers. I wasn't interested, but he thought I'd really enjoy it. We had tickets, and then Belushi died. I think that's how the story goes. So, so anyways, by the time the Sadics broke up in probably 84... It was actually getting pretty good. We were doing like a long shot, kick the bucket. We're doing traditional, you know, uh, Jamaican ska songs and stuff. And they got really into, uh, I got really heavily, pretty much because of the clash and uh, bad brains and stuff. Though, But I kind of, by 1984, I had no interest in punk rock really anymore. And I was just going to reggae shows and the dance hall shows in Los Angeles, stuff like that. And, 
saving my money, dropped out of high school, saving my money to uh, go to Jamaica. And, uh, and I don't know, uh, you know, I met right around that time, I made the mistake of uh, shooting speed, and then that just changed the whole trajectory of, like, what I was doing. You know, I just fucking twisted everything up, but... Yeah. Why do you think it was the hard drugs and not alcohol that really fueled the desert scene back in the day? Well, you know, I, I, you know, honestly, it was the booze, you know, initially. And then the thing is, and, and you know, I don't know if it's fair to, to, like, in that one documentary, it was just all about speed. And, and I remember thinking, fuck, dude. Those guys interviewed me for hours and hours and hours, and then when the when the movie came out, like the the um, meth was was kind of like the theme of it quite a bit, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, which was true for whoever was, but um, I don't know if that was everyone's truth, but 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 the, going back to like okay, so at my house, my mom's house, I call it my house. You know, and I was renting rooms out of my mom's house and like, like, uh, pretty early on, I had this dreadlock woman from Vancouver whose sister was part of the Vancouver, remember they blew up that thing and accidentally killed that guy in Vancouver, the Vancouver oh, five or six. Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Her sister was one of, it was an accident. It was, but it sucked. Cause I think there was a, anyways. So, so when we, when we started doing speed, speed hadn't become real popular yet again, you know, like drugs seem to go through phases. And so the Mexican, the cartels and all that, and the super labs, none of that existed. It would just, to the best of my knowledge, it was just bikers still cooking it. Like they never, so, so there was always meth in the desert, you know, because there was always bikers out here and they would, um, uh, you know, they would cook the speed in the desert because there was a lot of space to do that, you know, and it would, it would, uh, help their, you know, help them make extra money. So I feel like there were just an abundance of, and cocaine was still popular, but it was expensive, you know, who could afford Coke. So and the speed I heard was, was really cheap. So I got into meth and then it's fucked, dude. I turned all the little kids on to it. We were all into it. And, and so it didn't help. Like, it's one of those drugs, especially if you're young, you just do it. It just you can party all night, drink for days, like woo, you know. And then before you know it, man, you're just a tweaker, you know. And so you're tweaking. But uh, I think must have had it was some a lot to do with it, you know. It was just available, you know, really available. Heroin was expensive. It was like you could get heroin, but you had to go out to like Coachella or Indio or farther. The closer to Mexico you got, the cheaper it was. But then it just wasn't real cheap yet. It was it was kind of expensive and it didn't seem like there was a lot of extra cash. So the meth seemed to be like the drug of choice for, for that reason, at least for me, you know. Well, what was the moment that you got clean? And do you try to provide guidance for the new generation to not make some of those same choices? Shit, dude. Uh, the moment I got clean, the moment I got clean, I was I was sitting in a methadone clinic in Hollywood. I just switched my methadone from Santa Ana, California to uh, Hollywood. And uh, and it's such a, methadone is such a, 
it's its own beast. So anyways, like, because it was different counties and I was just trying to get a detox, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't give me a detox. They would only keep me on maintenance. Maintenance is what they have you on when you go every day and, and there's no plan on getting off really. You just, you're just on it, you know? And, and the detox is where they come up with this, like, oh, we're going to take a little bit off the top each day until eventually you're off it. Mm-hmm. So I was in the methadone clinic waiting for my dose in uh, Hollywood. And the plan was going to be um, to just not use for a month, get off the heroin, and then uh, go back to drinking and smoking weed, you know. And I was sitting in that methadone clinic waiting and... No, I had no veins, dude. They had to like, bleed my fingers. And the thing is, that's crazy, is I hate needles and I hate blood. Like, so so the fact that I even ever started shooting drugs is really, really weird. But uh, but I was in there and I was looking down and, it's, and there was some literature from one of these 12-step programs. And I remember thinking, fuck, who am I kidding, dude? I've never drank one beer without immediately like ding you know just like wanting to fucking keep going and just just rally you know so so that was my moment of clarity as it were you know uh, and that was may 15th 1997 i've been i've been cleaning sober a long time um since that since that day i had tried for about 10 years but as far as as far as trying to uh, help people or you know all I can do is just kind of be a living example because no one did. Even when I first started using, like I really took to it as far as being ADD and all over the fucking place. As soon as I did that first shot of Coke is what it was. And I, I fucking taste that ether. Uh, I guess I was 16, 17. It was the first time in my life where I became completely focused. I was like, you know what? I want to do this all day, every day. So, I had already dropped out of school and was working at the car wash and the older dudes at the car wash, there were some dope fiends there. And there were some other guys just like, you know, weed beer guys and uh Quailu guys or whatever. And they were like, they were telling me right away, dude, they could see, you can always see it. And when someone starts using like that, you can tell by their personality kind of like what's ahead. And it's either really bleak. It's generally bleak, you know, like, Oh man, this motherfucker, you know, and they were trying to tell me, dude, the only the best case scenario, man, is you you're gonna end up in the penitentiaries and dead. Those are all you got coming in this. And I was like, all right, well, okay, I'll stop, you know. And then, of course, was fixing that day. I didn't, I didn't, wasn't listening. So no one listens. Is my point. You can't. So you, you can only be available when when someone's finally like, you know, have options or 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 like, or you know, it's so fucking weird, man. Like, how do you? You can paint this fucking picture for people. Dude, how the fuck... Dude, I, I knew that I was problematic for years before I stopped, but but for some reason, I still sought that relief. I still, like, saw it as, like, as relief, where now, man, I only think of it as pain. Like, it, I go, relief is a joke, dude. It's fucking... If I think about it, I'm like, oh, my God, man. I can't even imagine. You know, there's just so much work. It's such a bum out, man. Oh, my God. So, I've had a had a psychic change as it were but you know well, go so on. to answer your question i'm available to help someone if if they're if they if they're available to do the work to help themselves you know otherwise i can't i can't fix anybody you know mm-hmm. penitentiaries don't make people clean and you know uh 
you can't make anyone clean. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As we, as we. St- well, going back to the house parties for a second, when Mario of Fatso Jetson started holding the generator parties out in the desert and was crediting you for the house parties, did you always expect those parties would lead to something more? Or were they always just kind of an dude, escape for you? Dude, we, you know, and the crazy thing is, is my uncle had, my uncle had this group in the 670s, I guess, called the Desert DPA, the Desert Party Association. They were like, had van clubs and stuff. So I remember he'd take us, you know, to like driving movies with his van club and under the beanbag pillows and shit, sneak us in. But they were having generator parties too, which is, so it seems like, uh, if you live in the desert, the, the, like, like if you lived in Lawrence, Kansas, you go out in the cornfields, you know, and, and have a party and the cops wouldn't come. In the desert, you just go to the desert and have a party because you probably won't get busted, mm-hmm. you know, and you can party longer. But I, I didn't think anything would ever come of it. To be honest with you, I wasn't a, I wasn't like, we just went out there and partied, you know, I was never, to, and, and then when I got clean, I was, um, I had like 14 months, you know, I was clean and sober for 14 months and, and it was July, I think. And I got this phone call from this dude. He's like, Hey man, I'm on tour with Rancid on this warp tour and we need another merch guy. And they just want someone who's sober. Do you want to do it? And I really needed the money to get out from under this child support and all this, you know, I had owed some money and I was trying to catch up and, and I'm like rad dude. So I, so I go on this tour and when I'm on that tour where, uh, one of the dudes in the crew, in Rance's crew, go, oh, you're from the desert, dude? Do you know those Caius dudes? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know those. What do you, well, yeah, what about them? Dude, I, had, I didn't get the memo that they had kind of blown up and were had gone to Australia and played with Metallica. I didn't know any of that even happened. And, I, and honestly, I didn't know they were, I didn't know anyone outside of the desert knew about them. You know what I mean? This was in 98. Uh and I was like, really? They're fucking, they go, they're like, those, dude, those guys are huge in Europe. I go, really? You're fucking kidding me, man. And, and so that, that's kind of how I found out, you know what I mean? That they, and I was, you know, the thing is when those guys were, were playing, I was older by, I don't know how much older I am than those guys. Nick and Brant and, and Josh always talk about, they used to always talk about it every time they saw me, not so much anymore, but there was this club here and I had this band, Zizo ZZZ, Frack and the Doombuggy Attack Battalion. And there's some recordings out there, but they're really horrible. So I wish we would have had known to make some nice ones, but they saw one of our good shows. And we always used drum machines because there was no fucking drummers. There was Alfredo Hernandez and there was this guy, Tony Brown, it was really hard to find drummers. So we were using a drum machine really early, the TR-707 when it first came out, and my friend Dan. So anyways, Zizo, our whole thing was like kind of based on like, you know, Zizo, ZZ's Afrax, the illegitimate child of Charles Manson, and, you know, the Doom Buggy Attack Battalion was like, you know, when Manson was got the Doom Buggies and got the girls to steal their parents' furs and, you know, made seat covers and they were going to go out to death Valley after they started the race war. And, and, and then there'd be a power struggle and the blacks would win the revolution, but not know how to handle the power. So then Manson would come back and all that bullshit. Cause he was state race. So he would just sing 
you know, everything he was seeing in the pen. So anyways, it was, that's where the name came from, but we were like long hair, do you, Pat, you know, and just doing Hawkwind covers and Stooges covers and some like kind of bad originals. And, would uh, would you weed, ever, weasel. would you ever get that band back together? And I tried doing a show uh, a couple years ago and, you know, but they, I, it, you know, it just was like, it once again, it was like, I don't know if I would, because like, there's really like, the guys are just kind of like, not really playing anymore. You know what I mean? But, uh, but at the time, it was they saw a good show. We we only had a few good shows, and uh, and it, and they were there to see Di, and they saw what we were doing. And, and apparently, you know, it was it was a good show, and, and it tripped them out. You know what I mean? Because we were like, it it was cool. Unfortunately, there's no good recordings or anything of that, but. Uh, Point is, they were just a little bit younger, maybe by, maybe only by three or four years. But if you're 18, someone else is 14, and you're already a dope fiend, you're already running around in different circles completely, and so you're not really paying attention. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To what other people are doing, and then, uh, and then in '89, I got my first wife pregnant and split. I left the desert in '90, right when all that shit was happening, early '90. Mm-hmm. And came back in '97 when I got clean, and uh, so in that seven-year period, I guess I'm not really sure what the Kaya's timeline is, but I feel like all that was happening sometime early in that in that timeline. Yeah, it's pretty much that timeline. But taking you back, you know, though, and then, taking you back to that TR707 drum machine, that shit must have been super new when you got your hands on that. Whose idea was it to grab one it of when those? When it first came out, and and the crazy thing was, I was telling you about my ska band, so we were using that TR-707, and I was doing, like, dance hall stuff, where, like, it was me and my friend Bruce, he was at, and we were the singers from the Psyotics, like, so he was this, he's a black kid, I'm a white kid, so he was ranking Yankee, and I was Private Ivory, and we get these DJ Jamaican dance hall records, and we would try to toast over him, you know what I mean, and, and, uh, and we used the TR-707, uh, which was, I think, exactly the same timeline as, as they were doing it in Jamaica. So we were exactly, we were really uh, accidentally in tune with that whole thing, you know what I mean? Which was pretty cool. Um, you know, we met Iggy Pop out here. I'm going to tell you this story. Uh, I think it was 19... Bowie had... Um, Bowie had... a uh, China Girl was on the radio... And uh, this is crazy, dude. So I think it was 1983, and I was downtown with this other dude skateboarding. And, dude, this guy walks up to me. He's got a dog in his hands, and he's, and he's with this Asian woman. And he goes, he goes, uh, hey, where's this dog grooming place? And I go, dude, it's right across the street there. I guess we are probably 15, 16. And, I, and then the crazy thing is, dude, I've met three super celebrities in my life and didn't recognize them. I don't know. I met Iggy Pop and I even think I had Loco Mosquito on my, like a drawing and on my skateboard. How do you, and I didn't recognize him right away. Robert Plant, I met in Dallas and was boy. I remember him and this dude turned the corner and I was, I was out in the shade smoking a cigar and I, and I said to myself out loud, Whoa, look at these wizards. Cause they had all their like gear on, like they're all wizarded out. And then, uh, and then Jerry Garcia, I met him when they were 
filming that touch of gray video in Monterey. So we would go, we'd all, that's a whole nother story, but a lot of people started going to these dead concerts and we would, I would just go to, uh, uh, you know, that's all, you know, I would just go to party, you know, but, uh, so when they were filming the touch of gray video in Monterey, they were like, Hey, there was the puppet one, right. When they were kind of blowing up again, mm-hmm. they go, anybody who wants to be in the video, uh, come on down this evening to, uh, you know, back out to the, where the concert was away from the campground. And we're going to, so everyone went down there and I was like, fuck that. So me and this dude were hanging back in the campground and this guy pulls up in a van with his other, like kind of shot out hippie looking dude driving this little minivan. It was Jerry Garcia. They're like, Hey, what's going on, man? Uh, you know, I don't know if they were looking for, I don't know what they were looking for chicks or they were just cruising around the campground. Cause no one was there. And they, they were just going, I don't know what they were looking for. And I didn't recognize him either, man. The guy's like, we need your friends. He made Jerry Garcia. I'm like, fuck. So we meet Iggy. And uh, he starts to turn around and walk across the street after we give him directions right there on Indian Avenue. And then he turns around and he goes, hey, do you like Iggy Pop music? <laughs> and we're like, you mean? Like, fuck, it's Iggy Pop. What the fuck? Dude? Yeah, of course, fuck. Oh, I can't believe we didn't rec- uh. So <laughs> then he, he walks back over. He goes, hey, can you give me some weed? We're like, fuck, yeah, we can get you some weed, dude. So we call our friend Rudy, Mark Landau, who played, he was our Scott keyboard guy. Mm-hmm. And then also, and we're like, Rudy, you'll never believe it, man. We're with Iggy Pop. It's like, bullshit, put him on the phone. So he puts him on the phone. <laughs> and Iggy starts singing, um, I can't remember what song he asked him to sing. It was like, uh, you know, I don't know, it was no fun. I don't know what it was, but it was a classic. So he starts singing and he's like, fucking, he still don't believe it's bullshit. So Mark lived, uh, he lived up in Las Palmas. His dad, he's a, a nice Jewish family. Uh, his dad was a brain surgeon. His mom was a homemaker. And they had a beautiful home next to Elvis's honeymoon house up there. It's right next door. So we cruise over to Iggy, uh, with Iggy to get the weed. You know, he's living with his parents because we're kids. And, uh, dude, Iggy sits down with Mark's mom they had like one of those rooms with a piano in it when you enter. Then I don't know what you call that extra space room. But he sits down with the mom, st- starts playing piano with her. They're playing <laughs> and everything. So we get the weed. He's staying at the Ocotillo Lodge, which is over here across the street from Elmer's near the Ace Hotel. Mm-hmm. They had these bungalows. And we were with him every single day for weeks. And uh, the first day we go over there, and he answers the door naked, of course. And he like... Uh, <laughs> He, like, tries to sit on my lap or does sit on my lap, but I'm already getting naked, dude, as well, because I know it's, like, the power of... You know what's also crazy, dude, was when I was in elementary school, I remember going through my uncle's Playboys, and in the back there was kind of, like, a, a page. It's, that's how I remember it anyways, of, like, with music pictures and just what was happening on the scene, sort of, like a scene report in Playboy. And there, I think it was Playboy... I remember there was Iggy Pop in those jester pants with his cock out. And I was, and I remember thinking, whoa, who the fuck is this dude? What's his story? And this was, you know, like, I was a little boy. This was mid-70s. So, anyways, he's he's sitting on my lap and, like, whatever. So, unfortunately, you know, what's crazy. We He took us to the Palm Springs train, you know, and he had his son Eric with him. So I guess maybe that's why he wanted us around. His son was pretty young. He was like 13, I think. And he was kind of a metal kid. So we would be over there every day with him. He read the, he read this letter to his wife, to his wife's parents, Asuki, 
he's like, he read us the letter he just wrote uh, to propose to her, asking permission. And then, so he, they bought all my records, all my uh, dance hall records. And uh, they recorded them and gave them back. But uh, my friend Mark, he seems to think that we turned Iggy onto dance hall, which I'd be like, well, how, how would Iggy not already be into dance hall music? But dance hall music was real current, like, like, I was buying records kind of in real time, so it's possible. And I, I follow that Biggie Pop, and he's still playing Sister Nancy and all that uh, 80s dance hall shit all the time. So mm -hmm. he clearly loves it regardless. But, dude, we would be with him. He'd take us to the tram. He, he took us up to the Palm Springs tram, and he, he put me in this SS coat, you know, like some kind of – he was totally, you know, and I was like, oh, all right. Uh, and then uh, – and then he, we like he was getting these checks from Bowie, I guess, once a week. I can't remember how much it was. And he would like walk in downtown Palm Springs to like this exotic, you know, boot store, and uh, take all the money, buy like fur trench coats and exotic boots, and be borrowing twenty dollars from us immediately to buy a beer. Like, hey, let me get twenty until I get my check. All right. <laughs> and then uh, another highlight of that was we were in this supermarket over here. And I think Iggy might have turned me on to Hank Sr. So he had a, a, a boombox. And uh, we're in the fucking supermarket. Iggy's got Hank Sr. on 10, dude. And I'm just like, dude, you're going to get us busted. Turn it down, man. Fuck, man. Uh. He, he didn't give a fuck. Oh, they're with me. He gave us the money and walked out. Like, dude, we can't buy beer. We're 15. What the fuck? Or 16. But it went. we never thought about taking a picture or... Uh, or recording or all the things mostly we just argued about like the history of jamaican music and stuff you know and uh i don't know it was just surreal and, and we still we still think about it all the time it, it's it's hasn't shown up anywhere in iggy's history is like we're like maybe he'll talk about it one day but it's like why would he be talking about us two weeks with us when the guy lived such a um you know such a life you know but to me it was like what the fuck so I don't know how I got on that tangent, dude. Sorry. Oh, no, hell no. Well, speaking of old school Palm Springs, was Adrian's the go-to place back then to play because it was all ages? Or were there other venues you felt like it showcased the scene better? Adrian's was, they never lasted long. And Adrian's was the one where I met, where Brant and those guys saw us. Uh, I think they might have had two locations, you know. And then there was... You know, the, the first time Black Flag came to Palm Springs, there were no venues. It was Des was singing. Des Kadena. It was pre-Henry, so whatever year that was. And uh, and uh, so we rented the youth center. And uh, and we were in charge of, like, building a stage and stuff. But unfortunately, we still, we still thought that punk rock meant just, you know, vandalizing and getting drunk and you know, stealing and breaking things. And we didn't really, just not giving a fuck in general. So me and a couple other, and I don't know, all the little punk crew were supposed to be building this stage and we were working on it. Uh, I don't know if anyone really knew how to build. and But we ended up just spray painting the youth center and, you know, breaking things and spraying, you know. So we got kicked out of the youth center just like the day before Black Flag came. So there were, or maybe even the day of. So Rodney Bingenheimer, for some reason, shows up out here. He's in that G, his little GTO. So he's here, and there was some punk chick from Huntington called Kelly, and I guess she knew him. I don't know. And uh, so we spent the whole day, it felt like two days, where are we going to do this show? And 
finally, we found this um, this uh, restaurant. What was it called? It was over next to Burger King, and they played. You know, it was just it was just insane, man. That they even uh, I don't know. It was it was great, and there was there wasn't many of us. But beyond that, you know, there weren't a lot of clubs. There were like maybe no clubs. There were those youth clubs. They would open. They would close. So it was mostly house parties. Pre-generator, it was just house parties. You know what I mean? There'd be house parties and and then, uh, you know, then the generator party. Boomer, you know, Boomer, he's the guy. You know what I mean? He's like, really. When did you start uh, noticing a lot of shows were happening happening up in Pappy's? Pappy's, Pappy's was always there. I guess I noticed, I don't know when the girls took it over. Um you know, Joshua Tree's a trip because Joshua Tree used it was always been cool, but it used to be real cheap, dude. Like really cheap. Like I got this friend, Durwood, who was Generation X's guitar player. And, you know, Billy Idol and the other dude ripped Durwood off. Uh they published all those songs and didn't give them writing credit, which they were supposed to. So so Durwood got fucked out of a lot of money. And uh he had this record that was never released of Generation X's. This is around 1996, I guess. And you can still sell records. You know, people, there was still a little bit of money left. So he goes, Sean, I'm going to fucking sell this record to the fucking Japanese and make some money. Fuck it. You know, I go, dude, you should, you should, um, you should buy a house in Joshua Tree. You could get a pad out there for like 40, 50 grand on five acres, you know, and fat pad. So I didn't see him. Uh, for a year or so, and then I bump into him. He's like, Sean, I sold that record and bought a house out there. He still lives up there with his wife. <laughs> so the point is, it used to be cheap up there, man, and, and people would come to the high desert to Joshua Tree, and they'd take mushrooms and, you know, bands or whoever, and they would think, this is pre pappies they would think they wanted to live out there. They'd buy a place real cheap, and then they'd be out there, and they'd be like, fuck, you know, this place sucks. There's nothing to do. <laughs> so... So the desert, especially up there, well, especially before Pappy's, was like you either had to really love the desert, you know, but if you were trying to do shit, it was what you would you would quickly realize like, just depends on what your brain is, you know. But when Pappy started, kind of a perfect storm, you know, and and bands started coming, and then and then it also with Pappy's, the thing is, it's far enough from Los Angeles. So it's probably two hours, 40 minutes or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think it falls outside of, there's these radius clauses that big bands get when, you know, so that it protects the venues and the agents from like, you know, guaranteeing somebody a shitload of money and then mm-hmm. finding out they're going to play fuck the next town over, you know, for half the admission or whatever. So Pappy's fell outside of that. So it was an, it would be considered, it was another spot you could go play. So you could be on tour and play Los Angeles. You could, you could schedule a weeknight at Pappy's and it wouldn't affect your contract. You would be, you know what I mean? So then people started really enjoying it because it's fucking super bitching out there. And, uh, you know, obviously Robin and Linda, I think originally they bought that place with another dude. There's three of them. They came from New York and I, I, I feel like he wanted to do like, oh, this place is great. We just got to get rid of all this old shit and give it a fucking makeover. And, and they were like, are you kidding me, dude? It's, it's half Why personality. Would you... Exactly. Why would you do that? And so I think they bought him out or whatever. And, but, man, those girls are so rad, you know. And, and so 
you know, it's it it just made it even easier to be up there because so many great bands play up there. You, you don't really need to be anywhere else. The only dude, the only thing I miss living in Palm Springs is if I lived in Los Angeles, I would go to the Dub Club on Wednesday nights, you know, with the Echo, and uh, that's just the one glare. That's the one thing that pops out immediately, you know. I mean, besides that, personally, I, I mean, I don't need to be. But then again, I tour a lot, so you know. But but, and you know, what I mean, but uh, there's a lot happening out here. But now, you know, and so the owners of the Echo just opened this club called, uh, I think, it's the Alibi. Uh, downtown Palm Springs, and uh, it was in a, and then, fuck, dude, just like a lot of places, dude, this fucking COVID hit, man, and it's like, it's just like, dude, it's just fucked, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So I don't know if they're gonna survive it or not, you know, like a lot of these venues, but you know, I can't say enough for Pappy's. It's so beautiful and so rad, you know. If, I, dude, if if you love the desert, then you love the desert. You know, I love the desert so much, man. It's like. I could just, uh, now that I'm older, especially, you know, I see it. I didn't see this, dude. I grew up here just, now I didn't even see this big mountain. It's right in front of me, this huge Mount San Jacinto. It's like, I live right at the base of it. You know, I was just so busy being into, you know, whatever I was into that I didn't even, you know, now I completely see it. wherever I'm at. I'm like, whoa, look at the, look at the mountains from this angle. Look at them from, and can you imagine, dude, like in the early, 19, even in the 50s, dude, when, when Sinatra and, uh, God, who was that girlfriend or wife of his that broke his heart? Uh, was it Ava Gardner or was it, he had, God, I, I'm so bad. So he, that, his house on Alejo, when they built that house, it was the 50s or 60s, it was still a fucking dirt road, which is just hard to imagine, right? Downtown Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. But point is, you know, the Coachella Valley, is literally in the middle of a bowl of mountains, if like 360 degrees. So I just wonder how bitching it must have looked when before the trees got tall and, and all the houses were here. You would just be like, you could just turn a 360 and just look at all these mountains. Like, whoa, it must have been so fucking cool, you know? You know that guy, and he's kind of in Sinatra's area, who had that... Um... It's kind of like Slab City, but he just did it in his backyard, and, and it was like a Christmas place. And so every Christmas. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That's, um, yeah. I, I can't believe that they made him he, shut that down. That's crazy to me. I know, dude. You know, he comes like his, I think his, I can't remember his uh, parents' story, but they got a lot, a lot, a lot of dough. So they were able to fight it for a long time. They had no problem fighting it. Mm-hmm. Have you been to that? Oh, I've, um, I, I've been to it. I fucking loved it. It was so cool. Yeah, it's insane, dude. That guy's cool. I, I can't remember his name. Um, but it just became like a logistical. It just the neighbors were bombing, dude, and they, and they had, so they started crying about it. I know a guy that was behind him, and uh, and then he, you know he had enough money where he was able to like hire security guards and mm-hmm. and close off the street and park cars elsewhere, and you know. But I know they did it in Detroit this year. He did like a um, like a a mini one-off Detroit's like we'll come here we'll do it here you know oh did he move all so of his, did he move all of his stuff over to no, Detroit? all his stuff's still in his yard he just took some of it or or repurposed other things you know there as well 
I, what's his name? Dude? I always wondered why he didn't just when they were gonna shut him down. I I was shocked that he just didn't move everything over to Slab City and just keep it going. I was shocked actually. I mean, he could have actually, yeah, easily. Slab City's a trip too, yeah. But uh, I know it's you know I don't know if that he knew that. I'm sure he wasn't looking ahead when he when he made his first thing, his first dinosaur, his first. He just probably yeah. started building. Because clearly, he does all that himself. So, and then, you know, it's like anything. You, they just build and build and build. And one day you wake up and you've got like four acres of fucking dinosaurs and cars and lights and, mm-hmm. you know, burnt computers and just all kinds of crazy stuff up there, you know, with like heavy messages like, whoa, man, you know, it's kind of trippy. Uh, and you know what I mean? It, it just like happened. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa. <laughs> uh I don't think it was – do you think he planned that? I mean, who knows? Maybe that was always his ultimate vision. Like, you know what? One day – It's just such, how long did that take? It's such a big yard too. Like it has like its own pond and shit. I, like, I feel like he was always wanting to do something bigger with it for sure. Yeah, so I don't know whether – I've heard different things. Like maybe he's going to get some money from – maybe there was an agreement. They're going to move it out to like Desert Hot Springs or maybe there's a – another property plan where they're going to move everything to another property somewhere with, with space and, you know, where people can, where they can keep it permanently. Mm-hmm. Kenny, his name's Kenny something. Kenny, uh, what do they call it? They call it a, I'll never remember right now. Yeah, I forget what it was called. But Okay, Dude. speaking of new things in Palm Springs, though, what do you think of this new arena coming up? Do you think it's going to help out the music community in, sh- in like, showcasing local talent? Or do you think it's just another hockey uh, arena? Well, same with, you know, Palm, Spr- did the, Palm Springs and the desert in general, Pappy's works because it's kind of like a fantasy getaway. But it, I don't know. I don't know that it's always been hard for anything to succeed here with music. You know what I mean? Like Palm Desert, Palm Springs, this whole low desert. Mm-hmm. It's I don't know why and nothing's worked, but as far as the arena goes, I don't even know if they're gonna do it now, which is kind of a bummer because that whole thing was like well, no, uh, um, the, in the press conference last week, um, the Oakville group, oh, they're moving forward. The, the Oakville group is still saying they are moving forward, and it's still oh, good, be, good, because there was an article about a month ago, and it sounded like. I don't know if the, if the tribe was backing out, but it, you, there was a lot of gray area, and they were like, well, we don't know, and, and I don't know if it was because, I can only guess, you know, like, oh, you know, because of COVID, they lost a lot of money, and maybe some of the members are like, fuck it, let's not spend extra money, plus, how do you build an arena when there's a pandemic, and mm-hmm. You just build it, you know what I mean? And and when the, you know, eventually. I, I really hope that it comes. I'm a huge hockey fan, and I. Oh, dude! Speaking of which, um, uh, I'm so bummed, dude. When I was in Calgary, that's where you're from, right? It is where I'm from, and you were oh, th- that show. I was there with Brant, dude. Yeah, it was, and it was so a bummer good. because usually Brant doesn't make me sound check, you know what I mean? And but because it was the first show in a long time. He was like, "Well, dude Wheeler, we got a sound check." And I had a I had a ride uh, to the Calgary Hitmen were playing that night. I was yeah. going to go watch the Hitmen play, uh, uh, and I couldn't go, dude, because oh. I had the sound check. And of course, it ran late and everything. And of course, I'm getting mad, even though like 
Brant's bringing me along until he's spoiling me. I'm like, huh, yeah. why can't I be at the Hitman game? I don't need to show and check. This is stupid. You know, like, well, you know, but that, I understand that because, dude, you know, not bringing out here, out here to like, you got a sound check. You know, it's just like, it's, you know, so, anyways, this friend named Jory, Jory Kinjo, do you know him? Uh, He's kind of a ska soul guy, and he plays Jory, K-I-N-J-O, I think is his last name. I have to double check. So I did a record with this Rocksteady group a couple years ago, guys from the Slackers and this legendary percussion player, Larry McDonald, who played with all the Jamaican dudes. He left Jamaica to Mexico City before reggae even started. Like He left during Rocksteady or ska, and he came back two years later, and it was reggae, you know, but... Uh, he played Gil Scott Heron forever. This guy, Jory, did the U.S. tour with us. And, and then, anyways, uh, he lives there in Calgary. And uh, he sent my son a jersey, a Hitman jersey, which is really sweet. So my son was playing hockey out here. Nice. But they just lost the rink, you know what I mean, uh, a couple months ago. Well, I don't know if they're going to grow there. The thing is, that the hockey rink in Cathedral City is in the zone where growing marijuana is legal. So it just felt like its days were numbered because people make so much money growing weed and, and they seem to be struggling having an ice rink, you know, for some reason. Is is that the only um, arena there is in Cathedral City right now? Yeah, and, and they officially shut down during during this covid so it's gone it's, it's dust so that's where the kids were playing hockey so so outside of travel league which is insane you know um there's no more local hockey or local ice hey there was you know when the palm desert mall first opened there was an ice rink i don't know what in the and this was mid 80s and and a bunch of bands i got a flyer somewhere but a bunch of us played on the ice i'm sure it sounded horrible especially <laughs> that drum machine because because you know, it always sounded horrible because there's never proper sound systems or anything, you know, but I remember, anyways, that was a trip. I hope that, so that's good. So I don't think it's going to help, but maybe it will. I don't know. You know, maybe my brain is too small to understand. Like if you bring the thing that people got to, I mean, Palm Spring, I don't know. You know, I don't know. It's like, I guess maybe if they brought a proper concert, people go, you know, because mm-hmm. it seems like most, who would have ever thought, you know, like Kiss and, all the big bands would be playing at the Indian casinos. You know what I mean? It seems like the casinos, seems like bands playing arenas are, are way less common and, play, and bands playing casinos are completely common now. And so maybe, maybe, maybe it would work. I don't know. I just wanted to, I just wanted to kind of go see hockey games because it would be close. You know what I mean? Well, I, I really hope it happens. And next time you're in Calgary, let me know because I'm taking you. I'm taking you to a hockey game for sure. But w- what did you think of that that Brant B- uh, Bjork uh, tour that you were doing up here? Did you have a lot of fun on that Canada tour? I, I did. We went to that crazy synthesizer uh, museum or whatever that you know the yep. one with all the God, dude. I, I just wish I knew more about it because the whole thing is mind blowing. We're there for I think we we're just there for two days. Man, the bummer is, it's, well, I can't be talking about bummers because, you know, um, because of, uh, but it's always been hard to get into Canada. Um, so for bands, you know, mm-hmm. but I know it's also always been just as hard to get into the States or maybe harder. So I haven't toured Canada and Canadians are, are like, 
great some of the best audiences like i know bands i just i just wish i toured canada more you know i did maybe i've only done i only i did one with open for queens of the stone age with throw rag we did a tour and um and i was there with Brant. you know what happened i do on the queens of stone age tour we played in vancouver some big place and uh it was in throw rag is like it's kind of just like whatever three chord rock punk rock or whatever so vancouver was so great man because half the audience was boo it was a big show half the audience was booing us it felt like <laughs> and the other half was cheering us and it was really like um it was really loud like so it felt like both sides were completely invested in their feelings towards us as the opener which is which is was really a trip, you know what I mean? Because usually people don't like a band; they're just like whatever, you know what I mean? But uh, but it was really like emotional for both parties, and that really stayed. Well. Like that's so rad, dude. Why do you but, think, why do you think that Throw Rag became the most known of all your bands? Do you think it's just because it came along at the right time, or do you think it's the most no, accessible? No, well, you know what happened, dude, was I got clean, so I put Throw Rag together the last three years of my using and you know like our first record uh didn't get finished till we got clean it was like it was i was so bad that we were in the studio trying to just do the vocals and i couldn't make it through one song without without uh shooting up i was just a fucking complete wreck dude so they were just like dude this isn't gonna work you know so so anyways i got clean we finished the first record t-top which was years in the making because of me and uh and as soon as I got clean, I was able to start touring and doing all the stuff I always wanted to do. So a couple of years later, um, you know, I was I was able to sh- dude. Before that, I was always naked, vomiting because I just had an energy stealing, you know, uh, stealing liquor from the clubs and just I was just a fucking bum out, you know. So we were banned from. At one point, we were banned from most spots in in L.A. Like. Uh, Spaceland, uh, Moguls, or uh, uh, not Al's Bar. Uh, but anyways, it was just, like, really difficult for Throw Rag to even get a show because it was, uh, you know, just we're a bummer. People don't want to deal with, like, vomit and stuff. <laughs> and uh, and when I got clean, you know, we started showing up to shows and got our shit together, and, and I wasn't... And if it was all ages, I wasn't getting naked anymore. You know what I mean? I was like, I could, I could like be respectful enough of like the environment to not have to pull my cock out and stuff, you know. And I was able to tour, man. And and I remember that what happened was Flogamolly, they were still pretty small. It was Flogamolly, the Slackers, and the dude who booked House of Blues Anaheim was a throw rack fan and he talked to Flogamolly's manager. He's like, dude, you should put throw rag on the tour, you know, and he and and uh the manager goes, dude, I don't know, man. It's like we're playing all ages clubs, like the Troubadour. They were they were small then, and uh, maybe three, four hundred capacity max, you know. And that was in L.A. and then in in Texas and stuff, with just little bars. But he's all, dude, I, I, I'm giving you my word, man. They're they're cool. Sean's got it together. It's, it's going to be cool. You're going to be stoked, and and it was. And and so it's like as soon as you start getting tours with bands that and then and then you're uh, uh pleasant to be around bands like bands around them that 
are easygoing, you know what I mean? And, and that they enjoy the company. And, and booking agents seem to have a small group of bands that are, you see all band, that fucking band's always on every tour. It's like pretty soon, if you can break into that, which is really hard, man, to figure out how to finally get into that circle, we just started working, man. Throw rag just started working. Like we, we we toured the states, like relentlessly, and uh, lots of touring, you know. And and that's why that band was popular. And the band was good, you know. I mean, at one point we were pretty good live, but we were doing this tour with Fog and Molly, and Gogol Bordello was the opener. So so Throw rag was more popular at the time than. Gogol Berdello, but I was already hip to Gogol Berdello, and I and I and I remember when the manager called. He's like, "Dude, I want to do Vlogamali Throw Rag Gogol Berdello will open." I remember I go, "Dude, there's only one band right now I can even think of in the in the whole world that I don't want to um, play after, and it's Gogol Berdello." It's like, "Ah, you're crazy, dude. It's gonna be great." I'm like, "All right," and dude, they just blew us. And they were like, they just were so good every night. They were so theatrical. They had both girls. They were crushing that throw rag, which is really more, the songs were okay, and then we were a good live band. So following that, our the, the throw rag live experience was like, you know, it was just like a five. It went from a nine and a half out of ten to about a five because Gogo Brunello is like, <laughs> so people are watching like, eh, let's go get a drink. You know what I mean? They'd already busted their fucking live nut with Gogo Bordello. So that was fucking, that was kind of the beginning of the end because for the first time, the band, some of the band members, and we were burned out from touring, but it didn't feel good because we were used to being like the opener who blew away the the, the, the other band sometimes. We'd mm -hmm. be like that. You know, like, dude, like my fucking Clippers last night lost to the Brooklyn Nets and it's all G League dudes. You know, it's like you go in there and they're overconfident and they get their butts kicked by these people no one's heard of. So we were kind of doing that back then. You know, just crushing, you know. And then uh, out on the Queens tour, I thought it would be a lot easier, but but on a lot of tours. And uh, anyways, so that's why Throw Rag, I think, got big. You know, when we, we toured, we started going to Europe. And, uh, you know, that kind of shit. And then since Throw Rag, the only thing I did, I did this band, Charlie Horse, this guy from The Cramps and some other guys. It was cool, but we didn't, we didn't, we, we just toured a little bit and broke up. And then Xander Schloss and I played for eight years as a duo. And, uh, and we were doing good. And then we broke up, unfortunately. I'm like, God, man, right when it seems like it's going good. I think we did it for eight years. And so since then, it's been about five years. Brant snatched me up for three years, which was cool. It was supposed to be one tour. It ended up being three years. But I've just been doing miscellaneous shit, which I probably should have talked about earlier because we probably, who knows if people are sick of listening to me at this point. But uh, so right, currently, well, I just finished an album with Rat Scabies and this guy from Adamant and this guy from De all these london guys and uh it's kind of like a gospel rock soul album and uh so that just got finished i'm just doing all kinds of and i did some ep with some russian surf instrumental band called the messer chups they never have singers but i just sang on it it's coming out this week and uh i just been kind of doing like one-off stuff but not really my own stuff you know what i mean do you have uh, any recording like in your basement or anything have you been doing anything during covid 
Yeah, during COVID, I've done... Well, luckily, that thing I was doing with the guys in London and then with this church choir from Tennessee, it's all put together. I finished the vocals just, like, literally the week before the, the lockdown. So that project's been ending. And then what's been going on mostly during COVID is I'm working on this book of poetry, which is going to have a spoken word accompany it with this artist, Bad Otis Link. And, and Otis is badass. He was like, he did all the early, like lots of the early punk t-shirts and he designed them and printed them and also went on tour with a lot of the early punk bands, early 80s. He's been around forever. He lives in the high desert, so he's been doing watercolors to my uh, the poetry I've sent him. And then I've been trying to figure out the best way to do the spoken work because it's kind of weird because I've I'm just figuring it out. You know what I mean? How how to how to do spoken work? I've only done it three times. You know, uh, like poetry reading. So mm-hmm. I got a guy in Mexico City uh, doing some strange like synthesizer background music and. Uh, so I want to have a record, a digital download, the book. I want it all to, to be available at the same time, which we don't, we're self-publishing, so we don't have a deadline, Otis and I, but it's, it looks bitching. Dude, I'll send you a picture Sweet. of one of the uh, paintings and poems, you know, but so that's what I've been doing during COVID, just obsessing on this uh, book of poetry. And I've been trying to like not watch the news like the first weekend, dude, I was watching the news and I was just getting angry and, and I was like, fuck this dude, fuck the news and fuck all these motherfuckers and all. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to, um, participate and I just want to, um, want to get right. Like I needed to just like, I needed to, to, to seek like higher counsel. You know, I didn't need to be getting caught up in all this, uh, mayhem because you know it's just insane dude it's, it's fucking america's insane you you gotta so, be, you gotta be happy that basketball's back now then well i am but you know what it's so fucked dude is i i'm a clippers fan and it's just brutal and it used to be easy like to be a clippers fan because you knew you were gonna lose so when you <laughs> won a game in the regular season it felt like you know, if you could beat the Lakers in the regular season, you felt like you won the championship. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just and if you lost, well, everyone expects you to lose. And then in the Chris Paul Blake Griffin era in the last eight years or whatever, it's just been like heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. And now we're in the Kawhi Leonard era, and uh, you know we got rid of this kid, Shea Gilgis Alexander, a Canadian kid, for Paul George. And this kid, Shay, he's on the Thunder now. He is, he's a second-year kid. He's so good and so cool. But I am happy, but but I, I, I just have to, like, remember it's just fucking sports. Who cares? But, but I've, been watching every, I've been watching every game, dude. Like, I leaked ass. Like, I just turn it all the way down. I put on basketball. It's on all day because they're trying to catch up really quick, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh... And then I'm doing these poems, like I'm cutting and pasting and editing and stuff, and, and that's what I've been doing, like, for the last however many months, you know. Although basketball just came back, as you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on here. I'm super excited for this poetry project, and I'm really excited to see you live again. 
And I'm really excited to get back down to the desert whenever the borders open back up. Hopefully we can like maybe go shoot some hoops, go do something downtown Palm Springs. Cause yeah, dude, just when you're here, call and uh, we'll just hang out. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. It, it, it means a lot that you came on here though. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, dude, you had so many like rad people. I looked at it. I was like, fuck, why is he asking me to come on it? Cause you're weird. a rad fucking person. Come on. <laughs> Someone, I was like, uh, and I, I listened to, I was like, well, I'll, I'll find out when we start talking what, what, uh, what he's into. And then, uh, I go Facebook mutual friends, huh? Only two Keith Morris and that guy Stewart from desolation. Yeah, Center? D- D- Desolation Center. I'm like, huh? That doesn't give me a lot of clues. You know what I mean? Like, That's cool. So then I go, well, what? Uh, is it about film? What? What would I? T- Dude, I can watch a five season series, right? Every day and forget what it's called and who's in it. You know what I mean? But want to tell you all about it. It, it, it um, is. It is funny that I call this the Film Cult Podcast because it really is just influences in art. That influenced me, influenced people that influenced me. It's really just all about influences and getting to talk to people that I find interesting. You are immensely interesting, and I hope that more people get to find out about you because of this. Dude, I was doing this record with these guys from England, and they have all their sexy Wikipedia pages, you know, and like, (laughs) oh, you know, and Sinead O'Connor, Adamant, The Damned. I'm like... Like fuck! Every time someone's like, "Dude, well, you're a musician. Who do you play with?" I always feel like, uh, uh, "You never heard of them." <laughs> so I had a friend. I go, "Hey, will you make me a Wikipedia page so I can just direct people so they can see all my, all my, uh, all my sexy friends that I've played with and made music with and stuff, you know?" And so that it just. But the reality with music is like. Like, when I talk about Larry McDonald, the Jamaican percussionist, mm-hmm. you know, the dude's 81. He played with Gil Scott Heron for 20 years. He played on all kinds of, like, really important records. But 99.5% of the people or more that you tell by, like, who? So as soon as it's, like, past one big name in art, you really got to be into art to even know or give a fuck. Like I, I got all these old big band records and stuff on a, what speed is it? Not 33 speed. The other speed, not 45, not 33, 78, 78 yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I guess they're 78s. And I was like, fuck dude, all these, all these dudes that played on these records. And it's like outside of maybe a family member who talks about it and no one remembers, no one remembers probably, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because, Everything's just, my great uncle used to always say in another hundred years, no one will know the difference, which I guess there's, I guess I understand what he's saying. You know what I mean? And it's like, but that's not why I do it, you know? And that's the cool thing. Like going back to what we said, like it went from one, I don't know what it was, but now it's just like, I guess, like I said, if it comes out on vinyl. It's like, yes. I'm, I'm always it's, it's excited. Official. I'm always excited when something comes out on vinyl. And I do not yeah. say that I own something unless I own it on vinyl. I could have it on CD. I could have it on tape. It doesn't matter. I don't own it. 
until it's on vinyl. Dude, I just bought a, uh, a Miles Davis record. And I didn't know which one to get. And then and then the guy goes, well, what's his name was in here? And he put this one on hold and hasn't come back. And I was like, oh, that guy's really smart. Okay, I'll take that one. <laughs> I felt like sweet because this guy has a friend of ours, me and Boomer's named Jared. He's got this crazy collection. He's a super music nerd, like like – like, what I just said about other people is how I would be compared to him. I would have not a fucking clue what he's talking about in 99.5% of the cases. I go, oh, fuck, Jared had this one. Okay, let me get it, dude, Brad. So I get home, and it's like, it's the Miles Davis record when I guess he's coming out of this, like, suicidal... He hadn't played in seven or eight years, and he was... He was I guess he was suicidal, and his nephew was in some kind of rock fusion band and convinced him to come and record with him. And uh, it's just like the first song starts, dude, and it's just like, you know, like that like horrible noodling guitar forever. I'm like, ugh, you're <laughs> killing me, man. It's called The Man with the Horn. But, the, but I got to listen some more. But, like, we were like, and it's, I like, anyways, I feel like I chose the wrong Miles Davis record. I got to go back and get um, the one... But the dude, I think he's Canadian, and, and, and it was before Tijuana Moods or, or whatever that one is. It's like that guy who, anyway, there's, the guy's going to let me trade it back in for something Where else. Where are you so, buying so. your records in the desert? Because every time I'm down there, I have the hardest time finding stuff. Man, you know, we have a friend named Scott who has like a uh, secondhand kind of... Uh, is, is it the one at the bottom of the mall? No, he's in Cathedral City in this industrial area, okay. and he's got a bunch of furniture and all kinds of cool shit. So he just has a bunch of vinyl that he has up there, and and most of it's like. So we went in there looking for a couch a couple of days ago, and then I just just picked up that this record was there. But but as far as there's another kid that's there is the record alley, the one you're talking about mm -hmm. in the Palm Desert Mall. Yeah. And that was our original record store. It used to be downtown Palm Springs. But uh, another guy that worked at the Record Alley forever just opened up a record store in Palm Desert. But he opened it up like two months ago. So who knows when it's going to be able to actually open up. So we'll see how that is, you know. And But I, I usually buy my vinyl on tour. I'll go into a, I'll drink a bunch of coffee. I'll walk around town and I'll, I'll see some stuff and I'll just buy it. And forever, I didn't even have a record player that worked, you know, but I just kept buying vinyl. So I, I got I got kind of a lot of vinyl. I mean, not a lot compared to some, but I've I've got enough that I need to go through it and get rid of what I don't want to listen to, you know, and just mm -hmm. become honest with myself. Like, yeah, I'm never going to listen to this, man. You know, it's like <laughs> unnecessary. But I got, recently I got the Nat Turner Rebellion, which is super awesome. I got a Sister Rosetta Thorpe album nice. live, which is super awesome. And I got a, a Sun Records blues stuff that's super fucking badass, like the early, early recordings. And then there was a fourth record, Miss Gaines, V-I-S-C-A-Y-N-E-S, and -E Friends. I don't know what that is, but it's pretty cool, man. It's kind of like, I don't know what you call it, but it was, it was pretty nice. This, so I got those sent to me from a friend. I was pretty stoked. Have have you but, been, uh, have you been picking right. up those those uh, Sun Records? Um, it's all the rare cuts, and they've remastered all of them. Have you been picking those up? They sound awesome. Well, I, you know, this, they just sent me one from Record Store Day, and then I had a box set 
that I had forever. And I was like, oh, man, I wonder if it's going to be all the same songs, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it seems like they just reissue this, and, and they're not. So that's pretty cool. So, you know, but my taste is, is all over the board. And I would like to say the, my favorite front man of all time is Shannon from The Cows. So, Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. I, I like to go on record. <laughs> <laughs> if I've said nothing else, that's an... You know what, dude? When I was... Before I got sober, I thought I was really rad. You know, I have like a high... I have a high... Uh, you know, I'm like... And, uh, and, uh, and they're like, this guy's like, hey, the cows, man. What? Fuck, whatever. So I go see him. And I watch this dude, man. And, and then it just washes over me like, Sean... You're you're like a pretender. You're not a real spirit conjurer. Like Shannon, like tweaked me so hard watching him because he's so good, dude. And, and the music really like lends to it. So he really gets in that like for me watching him in this like like kind of like shaman zone. You know, you're like, oh man, now now we're uh, now we're conjuring. You know, what I mean, like look at this dude. Wow, you know. Uh, so when we played in Minneapolis, Throw Rag played with uh, Motorhead in a. Uh, Minneapolis, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And Shannon's from Minneapolis. So I go, Shannon, did you got to come play? You know, he plays Bugle. Will you come play with us, man? We'll play with Motorhead. He goes, sure. And I expected everybody in Minneapolis like that was there to see Motorhead to know who he was, which <laughs> uh, most people, going back to the 99.5%, you know what I mean, dude? It didn't seem like they, it wasn't the... You know, dude, I would go see bands that I love, and I would get there an hour early, and there'd only be six people there. I'd be confused. Like, wait a minute. I was convinced I'd have to get here an hour early to see this, you know, but kind of felt like that. But, God, it was so great to just get to, to play with him, you know, and have him on there. And uh, two movies, because I was like, whoa, what movies do I like? Like, even if you oh, asked me okay, my favorite okay, record, okay. I, I wouldn't know how to say it. I want, I There's want. There's a movie on Netflix called, it's called The Killer. But it's called something else because it's uh, it's Brazilian. Oh, and it's 2017. Yes. It's insane, dude. I haven't had anyone else. I keep recommending it. No one watches it. It's insane. No, I know exactly. And then there's what a you're Netflix series called called Frontera Verde, the Green Frontier, and it's Colombian. And it's it's a it's a one season series. It's insane, dude. Have you seen either one of those? I've seen the first one. I have not seen the second one. I'm gonna have to go check that shit out. Okay, so, dude, am I imagining it, or was the killer insane? Oh, no, for sure. For sure right. insane. I was like, I was like, this seems really good, man, but I can't get anyone to verify it. You know what I mean? Oh, no, for, for sure insane. Okay, what all is... Right, okay, check out The Green Frontier. You'll dig it. What is your two favorite movies of all time? That's, that's what I'm saying. I don't know, dude. <laughs> um, you know what's fucked is I don't even know what my favorite record of all time is. I, like, I don't know any of the obvious questions ever <laughs> shit well i will let you think um, on that and next time i, dude, will, I, I will can come think back forever i can never my brain won't let me do it <laughs> I, and you know what's fucked up dude is like brant brant's a trip dude he'll watch he watched jaws for like i feel like a couple years straight like every day <laughs> it's not weird he's like dude jaws is a masterpiece wheeler like i, I like to study that film like that's a trip, you know what I mean? I, I always, you know what movie I always want to say, but it, it ain't my all-time favorite, was I used to, I really liked that movie, uh, I think it was uh, Wise Blood. 
Oh yeah, fuck Ice yeah. Blood? Yeah, J- J- John Hughes. Flannery O'Connor, Harry Dean Stanton, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I haven't seen it in like 30 years. Does it, is it great? No, please go back to that because that movie is a masterpiece. That is, that is what yeah, it, that one got my attention even when, you know, I, I love that movie. I watch it over and over again. Like, And uh, this is pre, you know, this is the 80s, so I don't know how I watched They must have been playing it on some late-night TV, and I must have been tweaking because I don't know how I saw that movie over and over again. You know what I mean? Yeah. D- you, know they get, you know how they get in the rotation and they're just on for a while on yeah. late-night TV? It must yeah. have been one of those, you know? That oh, is, yeah, I, I will go back to that. But the, God, that was great. I know Flannery O'Connor, I found out later, wrote the book. And I don't remember if I've read it or not. But uh, Harry Dean Stanton, I would say, is maybe maybe my favorite actor. I don't know. But all right, all right, I'll think on it. My What is, what's the question? My two favorite movies? Yes. <sighs> okay, I'll try to... I'll try to uh, I will. I will. Time. I will come back to that question later. Thanks for thanks for having me. Thank you so much, and I hey, can't wait to speak. To Otis you and I are calling our our book Dry Heat, so not that it matters, but oh, okay. now you know. Yeah, for sure. I'll let you know. I'll let you know when we when we finally finish it. Awesome. All right, man. Thanks for thinking of me, bro. I hope you have a wonderful day. Of course, and I hope you have a wonderful day. I I think I will. All right, bro. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, but thanks for listening. Make sure to keep up with Sean Wheeler on his Instagram account at Other Desert Cities. This concludes our broadcast day.